May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. In my uh, very first parish, a little church called the Grassy Lake Methodist Church, if you can believe that or not, in rural Kentucky, uh, we would have um, a Bible study in the rectory every week. So on Wednesdays, people would show up at, at, uh, at our home, and there would be this uh, weekly Bible study We'd sit in the living room, and, you know, eight or ten people would show up usually and, uh, and have some coffee and snacks and whatever, and we would, um, we would typically go through a book of the Bible, a chapter a week, and sequentially work through an entire book, and then at the end of that, start up another one and go to another book of the Bible. Um, so we would take, like, Mark, and it would take us 16 or 17 weeks, so we'd work through it, and then we'd start on something else. And on one occasion, I suggested to um, the Bible study group, how about we take Paul's first letter to the Corinthians? Um, Naturally, I felt like I was painstakingly thorough in my introductory uh, uh, time together with them. I think maybe even took a whole week just to introduce the book before we even began to look at the first chapter of the next one. And uh, I explained to them everything about uh, ancient conventions for letter writing and styles of writing and, and, um, and language that was used and the way that people would, uh, would address these. And, and so I thought I'd been really thorough. 1 Corinthians has 16 chapters. It ties with Paul's other book, the letter to the Romans, as his longest letters in the New Testament. A chapter a week. We would go through this a chapter. Oh, you know I'm going somewhere here with this, don't you? A chapter a week we are going through this. And about the 10th or 11th week, this fellow called Richard, who was a member of my parish, one of the most decent human beings you will ever meet on the face of this planet, a genuine, decent, gentle man, godly, been in the church his entire life. I think he was 65, 68, somewhere in that neighborhood. He'd retired and was doing a little part-time job. Richard is there with his wife, Elizabeth Ann, 10th or 11th week. He says to me, wait, wait, wait. So what you're saying is that this is like a letter that someone wrote to people at a church. I thought he was joking, you know. I thought, he's messing with me, right? And I'm like, yeah, it's written by a pastor to a church in the Greek city of Corinth. He said, so you mean this is like someone's private mail? I'm like, well, no, it actually is someone's private mail. It's not like it. It's exactly that. That's what it is. It's a letter written actually to a group of people as opposed to an individual. But yes, it's exactly... And he had the smile that just shot across his face, and I knew he wasn't kidding. That he had an epiphany in that moment, 11 weeks into a letter, um, but he had it. It came to him his entire life. He had been in church. He had heard of this book in the Bible, and it never once occurred to him that it was an actual letter. An actual letter written by a pastor to a church. For the next several weeks as we work through the season of Epiphany, a long Epiphany season this year, as long as you can possibly have almost. And so we have this long protracted Epiphany season, and the lectionary has us, of all places, in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. And we get to work through like about, you know, a a fourth of this of this letter. So I thought I would take this opportunity and we would just use this as sort of the basis for our um, our Epiphany preaching and, and, and study. Have you ever thought about how people name their children oftentimes from names in the Bible? 
You know, you get these names from the Bible. You know, you get your little Phillips and Johns, Simons and Peters, Marys and Marthas. You know, we have lots of these Bible names. And, and I have a friend who is a Mennonite. Um, they, have, they have a real uh, fastidious attachment to Bible names. They love Old Testament names even. You get Jedediahs and Naomi's and all this sort of stuff in, in an Amish world, in a Mennonite world. But nobody ever names their children Pilate. Um, or Judas, you know, you don't get many Judases around, you know. Uh, they just don't seem to gravitate towards those names. And people also name um, places after Bible place names. We have Macedonia, right up to the north. You find Macedonia not just as an area in the world and geography, but also, you know, it pops up in the Bible. It's the first place where, where Paul's called to evangelize the uh, it, on the European continent. So Macedonia, and I remember as I would... Uh, would drive around, especially in Kentucky, I would see things like the Macedonia Baptist Church, you know, or you might have the Berea Bible Church, another uh, place name in the Bible. You didn't see many Corinthian Bible churches, you know. Not many people pick up on the name Corinthian. And, and there actually is a city of Corinth in Kentucky, but that's because in Kentucky they wanted you to be able to travel the entire world without ever leaving the Commonwealth, you know, so you can go to <laughs> you go to Athens and Paris and Glasgow and everywhere else, but you never actually have to leave that. Uh, but, you know, nobody really names their, their church the Corinthian church. And there's a reason for this. Because as we read through this letter in the next several weeks, you'll find that this church is struggling. There are all kinds of issues, and Paul's letter is very pointed and direct. It's really not very um, warm and fuzzy. You don't normally look in a lot of the places in, in uh, his first letter of the Corinthians, although there is a big section there towards the end where you get a little bit of warm fuzzies. But even if you understood those in context, they wouldn't be nearly as warm and fuzzy as perhaps you might think. Paul writes this pointed letter to this church in ancient Greece because there's a lot of struggle going on. And he wants to correct it. And he wants to set this church to rights. But he begins very hopeful. And he begins in a place where I think most Christians should begin. A place where maybe a good place to begin our year is to remind ourselves who we are. This is what Paul does. He wants to begin at the very outset of his letter to establish the identity. Who are you, Corinthian Christians? What is your identity? And so he starts it off like you always do in an ancient world. You, you state your name first, uh, Paul, an apostle. Um, if I were writing to you an ancient, uh, a letter in the ancient world, I would say Joe, a priest, a pastor, a friend, to people who worship in Hudson. This is what Paul does. But he also says an apostle called by God, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. This isn't something I took on myself, he's saying. I have been, I received a commission and in the ancient church, the, the credential of, of apostle was at the top. This is one who has the authority to speak on behalf of God. We have our bishop with us this morning. I'm on my best behavior, you might notice. Um, but because our bishop has authority, right? He has authority in our diocese. The authority of apostle is above that of the bishop. And these, it, Paul begins saying, I am an apostle. And then he, he, he begins to speak to the church. Will you, if you have your bulletin, will you look at with me the, 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 um, the epistle lesson? Beginning in verse 2, he says, To the church of God that is in Corinth. Okay, so this, there's 
a level of specificity here, right? Paul, to the church of God that is in the city of Corinth. You, I'm speaking to y'all. This is, this is what he's saying. And, and he ends that verse, um, if you slide down through the end of that verse, um, uh, where am I? <laughs> to the church of God in, in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Look at this. Together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus. To the saints who are, to the church rather, that's in Corinth, as well as to anyone else in any place. You know, this is sort of a, uh, it, it, we have the specificity to the Corinthians, but also sort of the, the generality, the Catholicity to all Christians in all places. This is a letter for the Corinthians, but it's also a letter for you and me. It's also a letter to all those who lived in the areas around. And, and Paul wants them to know, who are you? And, and here's what he says, back up to the beginning of verse 2, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. To those sanctified. This is a tough church word. It's a word you hear nowhere else but in church. You don't go to Starbucks and hear somebody talking about this. You know, I would like to have that sanctified coffee. You know, uh, you know. they don't say that. Nowhere else do you hear this language. Sanctified means to be consecrated, to set apart for a holy purpose, for a sacred purpose. Um, under the veil on that altar is a silver chalice. It, it can hold anything. I mean, it, it's a chalice. It's a cup. I could go over there right this moment and take that veil off and grab that chalice out and fill it with soda pop or coffee or, or water. I could break, put water in it, come up here and set it right here on the pulpit and wet my whistle whilst I preach so that, you know, I'd be more comfortable. But if I did that, you would gasp, wouldn't you? That's not the proper use for that chalice. Yes, it'll function that way, but that's not the way you use it. That chalice has been consecrated. It has been sanctified. It has been set apart for a holy purpose. This is what Paul says that the Christians in Corinth are. You have been sanctified. That God has done something to you. God has said, look, I have done this for you. I have set you apart. God has done something for us as Christians. And I think it's more than that. I think that what Paul means that God has sanctified them, not only that he has done something for them, namely that he said all charges against you are are removed, you're, you're free from all that guilt. I think he also means that God has done something in them. That God has done something in us. This is a cleansing word. Not only have you been consecrated, set apart, but you've been changed. Um... I would love to say, this is in a philosophical term, this is an ontological change. But you might look at me like I'm weird. This is an internal change. Something is, we are different, qualitatively different kinds of people. God has done something in us. Now, you'll read this letter and you'll realize straight away that doesn't mean that we're freed from temptation, that we're freed from sin. Christians can still make hay in the sin business. I mean, we can still really pour it on if we wanted to. Not that we should, but it happens. Paul is saying, you don't have to give in to that, though. Because you have, notice the next word, look at this again, to those to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Called to be saints. To be, to be qualitatively different. 
I know this word makes you squirm. It makes me squirm. Called to be saints? I mean, it's axiomatic. What do we say? Hey, listen, I'm no saint, you know? And we use it to excuse all sorts of proclivities towards bad behavior. You know, I really do this and then I know, but you got to understand, I'm no saint. Paul seems to be saying, well, you're called to be one. You're called to live a life of holiness. Called to be saints. I think this is a little less threatening when we understand what holiness really is. Holiness lived out in a life looks like the life of Jesus. That's the standard for holiness. The life of Jesus is the standard for holiness. He's the one who, you remember, was friends with prostitutes and tax gatherers. Who kept company with sinners and went to wild parties. He's very famous for producing copious amounts of really strong wine at a party one time. These things appear in the life of Jesus, right? But he's also the one who healed people and listened to people and had compassion upon people. This is holiness. And our identity is to be an identity of holiness. We are a people who are to be holy. But Paul also reminds the Corinthians that there's more to it. Look at verse 4, will you? I give thanks to my God always for you. Why? Why do you give thanks? Because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. If you had a pencil, I'd tell you, underline it. Grace given to you in Christ Jesus that in every way you were enriched, and I would say underline that one as well, in him and all speech and knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed to you, so that you are not lacking. Here's another one. Three times. You know, I'm pretty, I'm pretty daft. You know, I'm not the... You got a little thick head up here, you know, not the sharpest knife in the drawer, sharpest tool in the shed. You get the point, right? Um, wasn't first in line when brains were handed out. But even I get it when third time around comes, right? You were given. You were enriched. You're lacking in nothing. This is what it means to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus. You have every grace, every, Paul says, charism. You have every charism you need, all the tools. Let me tell you a little bit about what it's like to be a father of boys. If you have boys, maybe some girls are like this. I don't know. I have no experience with girls. I have only experience with four boys, okay? Boys like toys that have hardware to them, you know? It needs to be made out of wood or metal, and it has lots of screws and bolts and batteries and those sorts of things. They want these sorts of toys so that they can put them through the paces to see how much they could really endure. What will it take to break a bike in half? I saw my son do it. It happens, you know. Jump a ramp till you can break the bike in half. You know, skateboards. And, and let me tell you, once they find out how far a toy can go, where its limits are, do you know what they do then? They go into the garage and they find tools and they try to repair it. And you know what they never do? They never put the tools back. Ever. One of these days, we're going to have an empty nest, Abby and I. And I'm going to go out and buy all kinds of tools. And I'm going to go look at them all the time because they're always going to be right where I left them. Which is probably not in the right place. But they're always going to be there. I'll be able to find them. All the tools that you need. Paul says, as a Christian, your identity is one of holiness and that you have all the tools you need to live this life. Everything is there, every tool, every gift for you to live a rich, full, and holy life. 
And if God would do this for the Corinthians, doesn't it make sense that he would do it for you and for me? That we too would have that same life. People talk about coming to Christ and saying, you know, you should give your heart to the Lord. And I understand there's a great place for that sort of thinking. I'm not, not you know, deprecating that. But it really puts the emphasis in the wrong place, right? As my friend from Portland used to always say, the emphasis is on the wrong syllable. <laughs> it's not exactly saying this right. It's not so much about us giving our hearts to God as much as it is he gives his heart to us. It's not so much about finding Jesus as being found by him. I would love to go through and show you all the passive verbs in this passage. It's all about what God is doing on our behalf, not the other way around. That we don't find him, he finds us. That we don't give to him, he gives to us. That we have this gift that is rich and full and unbelievably abundant. In uh, in 1826, there was an Irish doctor named James Barry, served in the, um, the Royal British Army, performed the first ever successful cesarean section. Uh, Dr. Barry was a wildly successful surgeon. Um, he revolutionized medical care in the 19th century. Um, he is credited with saving not thousands, but perhaps tens of thousands of lives. He was so successful as a surgeon that he rose to the, the second highest rank in all the Royal British Army, the, the, the inspector general. And he was, um, you know, did all the sorts of things. He, like, he developed these medicinal cures. Um, he, he, he changed hygienic practices. He did all these sorts of things. Um, he was a, a fascinating and most respected surgeon, perhaps even in, in all the world. But he had a secret, a secret that he kept for 57 years. And that is that Dr. James Barry was, in fact, born Margaret Ann um, Bulkley. Dr. James Barry was, in fact, a woman. You see, um, Margaret Ann Bulkley was um, the child of a family who was uh, bankrupt, and her father was sent to debtor's prison, and she became a ward of her uncle. And her uncle realized what a bright girl she was, and so he was training her to be a governess, and her uncle passed away. And she inherited his fortune, and one of her tutors realized how bright she was and encouraged her to take on the identity of a man and apply to medical school. And she did. And she was the brightest student that that medical school had ever seen in the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. And um, and became a doctor and had a career, 46 years (laughs) serving in the Army as a man. Margaret Ann Buckley was a, uh, or Buckley rather, was a gifted surgeon. She was a fantastic um, mind and intellect. And nobody knew who she was, but she knew who she was. She knew her vocation, and she lived it out. And it was only discovered after her death who she was. She knew who she was. And here's the question to us. Do we know who we are? And are we willing to live that out? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.